Uh, good morning. Thanks, Vicky. Um, so we're going to continue our occasional series in uh, the Beatitudes, just looking at them one by one. Uh, but as we saw last time, we need to look a bit more deeply at the Old Testament background before we uh, do that. So if you could leave your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 40, and I'll just uh, pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We pray this morning that you would continue to change our minds and turn our hearts towards your Son, uh, the only one through whom there is true and ultimate comfort. We pray in his name. Amen. There's a lot of emphasis now, isn't there, on mental health and um, how we can protect our state of mind. Personally, I've had a fairly easy run so far when it comes to uh, dramatic life-altering grief. Uh, Until recently, I've not really lost anyone very close to me, although now I'm starting to lose people in the previous generation. And particularly difficult was Dan's death, 40-year-old, leaving behind a wife and four kids while planning a church. Things like that are uh, difficult to process sometimes but uh, even though I've had a fairly easy run in that regard I'm feeling quite physically diminished uh, starting to lament (laughs) my lack of capacity to do what I used to be able to and looking around that won't be unfamiliar to uh, (laughs) to many people here Uh, if we live long enough we'll have much to grieve about Uh, One of my favourite websites for a bit of amusement is despair.com. Their motivation is to make more realistic, popular motivational phrases. So instead of it's always darkest just before dawn, it's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. (laughs) And no matter how destructive and difficult your problems may seem now, You've probably only seen the tip of them. (laughs) Uh, The beatitude we're looking at now is a bit counter-cultural, counter-intuitive, in that it will claim that the happy, approved, favoured person is the one who mourns or grieves. Uh, In fact, this sounds like a complete contradiction, doesn't it? Happy are those who mourn. But we need to remember again that the particular form of grief or mourning referred to here should not be primarily shaped by 21st century psychology but by the Old Testament framework in which it belongs. No doubt this uh, reference to grief includes much of what we understand as grief. But we must first understand this phrase in its own original context, which again means looking at the Old Testament. As we said last time, these phrases or beatitudes are like the tip of an iceberg, where the bulk of their meaning derives from what is underneath. So if you look at um, Isaiah chapter 40, last time we saw that the Old Testament particularly Isaiah 40 to 66 provides the main background to the Beatitudes and partly that is because the exile to Babylon 
the Jewish exile to Babylon was a difficult, was a profoundly confusing and difficult experience for Israel. A serious crisis of faith. See, it's difficult, it was difficult to understand theologically and emotionally. The destruction of Jerusalem was characterised by violence and humiliation. And Judah and Jerusalem were forewarned of this in chapters 31 to 39 of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, Isaiah addresses the exile and its meaning. Because one thing that particularly made the exile difficult was that the popular interpretation of the cause of the exile was that the Babylonians' gods were more powerful than Yahweh, the great God of Moses and the exodus from Egypt all those years ago. But it seemed at the time of the exile that Yahweh was not all-powerful and wise and faithful because if he was, why is the temple in ruins, the Davidic line all but finished, and the promised land ravaged. But of course the argument of Isaiah 40 to 66 is that actually Yahweh did this. He predicted it, he orchestrated it, and he brought it about. And he did it because of Israel's covenant failure. See, Jerusalem had become so far from a representation of Yahweh that it had to be levelled so that a new start could be arranged. But what Isaiah 40 to 66 also teaches the house of Jacob and us is that there is a way forward, as there always is with Yahweh. And this new way forward in Isaiah 40 to 66, is a new or second exodus that will restore a faithful remnant to the land and rebuild Jerusalem, the holy city. But a further problem that we come across as we work through this in the Old Testament is that the exile didn't change anything. See, it wasn't a fundamentally different Israel that came back. And upon hearing this message of a new exodus, they are still unbelieving and unresponsive to God's word. And because of this, Isaiah describes the exiles as an unbelieving, blind and deaf servant of Yahweh. And so this way forward will also include an ideal servant an ultimate Israel, a person who is what Israel ought to have been, and more. But again, we need to recognise that Jesus, when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, that he wasn't talking specifically about our particular cultural expressions of grief and mental anguish, He was talking in his context, which is largely shaped by chapters like Isaiah 40. 
So look at the first couple of verses in that and you'll notice in this chapter there's a sharp change of context. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is addressing Jerusalem about 750 BC when Assyria was the world superpower and they were in the process of wiping out the northern kingdom of Israel according to God's set purpose to severely discipline and judge his covenant people. And Isaiah is saying to Jerusalem, you are the same as them and you need to repent because judgment is coming to you also. And it's largely through the faithfulness of King Hezekiah that disaster was averted and God sent Assyria packing. But Isaiah also foresaw the day when disaster for Jerusalem would not be averted and they would be taken away into captive to ex- as exiles to Babylon. So look at the first two verses. We can see here that the exile has occurred or is occurring and Yahweh is now going to restore Jerusalem. And he's proclaiming a message of comfort to the exiles. It says there their sins have been covered and God is about to act to restore them and pardon their sins. See, in the midst of severe discipline for their rebellious covenant failure, Yahweh is now comforting his people. And this isn't the pathetic sort of comfort. It's the comfort of complete restoration, of a rebuilt new Jerusalem, of a restored promised land. And verses 3 to 5 then describe this return from exile in terms of the original exodus from Egypt. So... Look at those verses, you'll see the language. In the original Exodus, Yahweh revealed his glory by making a way through the wilderness to the promised land. He's about to do it again. And his people should be comforted by this. They should take comfort that God has not abandoned them, that the Babylonian gods are not greater. Yahweh, the great God of Jacob who brought Israel from Egypt, is about to do it once again. And a voice or messenger is sent to proclaim this. See, in the ancient world, you think about it, there's no internet. Not that NBN is internet anyway. There's <laughs> no telephone. So how do you tell people... 300 kilometres away, that someone's coming, the king is coming. Will you physically have to send a messenger ahead of you by a few weeks or days? So when kings or ambassadors would come, they would prepare people for their arrival by sending a messenger ahead of them. Yahweh is about to come in glory and he's preparing his exiled people for this. He's saying, get ready for this messenger because this messenger will come and announce the imminent 
um, arrival of Yahweh himself. And verses 6 to 8 are part of the message of this messenger and it emphasises the certainty of God's word. And this is important because if you've just gone through the exile, you would be very discouraged. Especially in view of the fact that most people around you are saying, well, Yahweh's failed. What does his word mean? He can't, he can't even keep you in the land. Why would you take his word seriously anymore? See, the Babylonian gods are superior. You cannot take God's word seriously. Even though this is what Isaiah previously warned would happen anyway. Or to put it in terms of our culture's recent ideologically, ideological interpretation of the world, your God is dead. We've killed him with science and our superior knowledge. So after saying, so now they are in Babylon, the temple is destroyed, the line of David seems to have come to a nothing and the popular interpretation of all this is that uh, Yahweh is not powerful and faithful. The Babylonian gods are better. It's obvious, isn't it? What other conclusion could a rational, reasonable person come to? We're in Babylon. God's promises have failed. So why would we believe his word? So after saying, unlike anything else in this world, his word endures forever and is by nature completely certain... He goes on to outline the program, verses 9 to 11. And the program is that Jerusalem is to shout with a loud voice because Yahweh is about to act in might to restore and shepherd his people. And he's about to establish his rule in dealing out justice and caring for his people in their vulnerability and brokenness. This, like all of God's words, is a certain word. This is about to happen. See, this is not just the comfort of a pat on the back and someone saying, they're there. This is comfort of an enduring salvation of a restored kingdom of God of a new, enduring, glorious Jerusalem. But of course we know this did not eventuate in the way that was expected. The people returned from exile, physically, but the return from exile didn't live up to these glorious expectations. But careful readers of Isaiah would have seen that coming. Because in the rest of Isaiah 40 to 55, Isaiah points out that Israel continue to be a failed servant of Yahweh. They continue to disbelieve his word 
and continue to rebel against the way that God will bring this glorious new exodus about. See, the way God was going to do this was by anointing the Persian pagan king Cyrus to write a decree that the exiles can return to Jerusalem. And at one point, Cyrus, the pagan Persian king, is called Yahweh's Messiah. And Israel hate that. They hate the way God's going to do it. They despise this plan. So in light of the ongoing failure of Israel, Yahweh puts forward an ideal servant who will achieve his purposes, who will delight in his word, who will obey him and will not fail to achieve God's will. And this, this, this servant will be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Hence he's known as the suffering servant. So when we come to Isaiah, the last ten chapters of Isaiah, it sort of deals with this failed expectation. And if you recall, last time we looked at Isaiah 61, where where this suffering servant himself speaks and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and comfort those who mourn. See, this, this passage in Isaiah goes on to describe one that Yahweh's spirit is upon who will comfort those who mourn. And the immediate context of this comfort is a properly restored Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, a Jerusalem populated with Jacob's descendants and people from all nations who align themselves with this program. And we, can all, and we also saw last time that this anointed one the one anointed by God's spirit is none other than the suffering servant. And of course, this is important for this beatitude we are looking at today because this is exactly what Jesus teaches concerning the kingdom of God and what he claims to bring. And he will do it according to these opening verses of Isaiah 61 by bringing about the day of God's vengeance and the time of his favour. So if you turn over to Matthew chapter 5, which is the so-called Sermon on the Mount, and there's other Old Testament precedent to understand this sermon. So, for example, the whole book of Psalms is introduced by the phrase, blessed is the man. Who is the blessed person, the favoured person, the happy person? So when we look at Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 to 2, we see a phrase taken straight out of Exodus. He went up on the mountain. When this happened in Exodus, Moses went up the mountain to hear God speak and receive the covenant word. 
summarized by the ten words or ten commandments. Now the greater Moses goes up on a mountain and himself speaks the words of God to the new Israel represented by the twelve disciples. And this greater Moses says some things about God's kingdom that weren't according to popular expectation, that are incredibly countercultural. So now that we've seen this background, it won't take long to see what Jesus meant in his own context when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. See, the grief we feel in a whole variety of ways and circumstances is a product of the ultimate grief, the ultimate tragedy. During the exile in Babylon, the opportunities for economic wealth were very good. And many Jews sought comfort in that and failed to care any longer about the future of Jerusalem. But, for example, Jeremiah was someone who mourned and wept for Jerusalem. And we see examples of this in Jeremiah's lament for Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations. Listen to just a couple of selections from that book. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbours should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. See, those who mourn for Jerusalem couldn't get that excited about Babylon and its wealth and its opportunities. They just wanted to get back and see God's kingdom established. See, broken-heartedness clouds everything, doesn't it? It's only those who didn't care much about Jerusalem who could engage with the prosperity of Babylon. In Psalm 137, the Babylonian torment captors tormented them by asking, Sing us a song of Zion, you losers. Their response was, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat sat down and wept. But there is comfort for those grieved by the ravages of sin. This isn't the inadequate comfort of a pat on the back and someone saying, there, there. This is the comfort of a kingdom where this will not happen anymore. See, there's much grieving in this world, but part of the problem is very little of it is for the glory of God. 
and the new Jerusalem, the home of righteousness, where all good rests. This is the irony of the Christian life. We are horrified and grieved by sin because of the work of God's Spirit in us. And we turn to Jesus and find unspeakable joy and deep comfort. (laughs) See, Jesus is talking about the comfort of a new exodus salvation that deals properly with the real problem, which is the human heart. The old Jerusalem that had to be destroyed didn't physically give way to a better Jerusalem after the exile. But what did happen is that from the ashes of the exile, the suffering servant emerges to be all that Israel should have been and he's pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities to establish the very foundation of a new, eternal, righteous Jerusalem. This is the comfort that God brings in our grief. So are you happy with this world as it is? (laughs) And think the problems we face aren't that big or concerning? Or that the obstacles to creating a better world aren't that difficult to overcome? then you probably haven't been around that long (laughs) or live in a very sheltered and naive circumstances or you just don't care. (laughs) Because in the real world, there's a great deal to grieve about. On the other hand, are you grieved by what goes on in this world? Does the extent of human suffering seem overwhelming? Personal problems mount. Trying to earn a living is stressful and not satisfying. This is the real world. (laughs) See, in a sense, all our grief is part of the much bigger problem of this world. And so grief is a good response. for which we need to look for substantial comfort. Another matter we need to consider is that we don't want to be as those in Babylon who ended up looking for their comfort in Babylon and ceased grieving for Jerusalem. And so when the opportunity came to return to Jerusalem... They preferred Babylon and presumably perished as unbelievers. Except for those such as Daniel who stayed for different reasons. See, the danger for us is that we don't grieve for the kingdom to come because we love Babylon. And we look for our comfort there. The blessed person is not the one who mourns for Babylon but the one who mourns for the new Jerusalem. See, there is no true comfort in Babylon. 
Grieving for the wrong thing just leads to more grief. I was talking to Steve Massa recently. Some of you will know him and his situation and he'll be preaching here uh, occasionally this year. But you might, if you don't know, one of their daughters, Sally, has a degenerative disease which is moving into the latter stages. And they've had to juggle difficult living arrangements and other consequences, as well as the grief of gradually losing a daughter. He told me about a series of helpful articles by a man named Robertson McQuilkin, who helped nurse his wife of 40 years through Alzheimer's, and how in the end he had to quit his high-profile job in Christian ministry to care for his wife. And what surprised him so much was how even many Christians had bought into the contemporary council and pagan worldview regarding the issues surrounding this. He was shocked to find from palliative care doctors that while most women will stick to their husbands to the very end, few men do. Even he was counselled at one point to leave her in care because she didn't know him anymore anyway and he could continue to serve the Lord in ministry. But his view was 40-something years ago, I said before God, for better, for worse, sickness and in health, to death do us part. You get the sense as you read his articles and his experiences that he was able over time to process his substantial grief in the bigger framework of grieving for the new Jerusalem. The new heaven and new earth, the redeemed creation. Whereas the contemporary worldview says, this is all there is, any comfort we find we must find here and now. But as we've seen in the Old Testament background to this beatitude, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, is built on the substantial foundation of the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, who is himself described as the man of sorrows, or man of grief. A great way to conclude this and think of this in one event is consider the women who followed Jesus, who went to his tomb to anoint his body, deeply grieved, thinking he was the Messiah. They were shattered people. But imagine their deep joy and comfort to see that all God had promised has now been revealed and confirmed in the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that in our desperate need, in the desperate grief and tragedy of this world. You didn't 
uh, stay in heaven looking down, but you entered this world as a man. And not just a man, but the man of sorrows and grief. The one who took on himself our suffering. That we can be properly comforted. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in us to consider these things in the light of the circumstances of our own lives. And that we might seek this one and his comfort and his salvation, because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.